Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. Today, our special 4th of July episode with our comrade and friend Matthew from A Fine Old Conflict Podcast, where we discuss the complicated legacy of the American Revolution. And just like the promise of the Republic, this episode has been delayed by a little bit. So enjoy this holiday content. Because that's how politics is. It's just it's an expression of a, someone's personality, which I think goes back to the, the, the 4th of July thing. It's, I, don't, I don't really think that people are demonstrating a concrete set of ideas around the world. They're just sort of like, it's like they went to the market of ideas, use that expression, and they found something that's edgy and looks cool and it makes it seem like you have a personality. So yeah. you say, hey man, all these dudes who signed the Declaration of Independence, they had slaves. Like, like you're yeah. pulling the wool off the eyes of anybody. You know, everybody knows they had slaves. It's just a question of whether or not you care, you know? <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, okay, I would, I would, I would put it slightly differently. I would say it's, it's a matter of what significance you think that that has and how you contend with the, whatever the implications are. So like one could say a majority of the signatories to the Declaration of Independence were slaveholders. And so that invalidates the American Revolution, and we would be better off as subjects of the British Empire. And even if I could agree with that, which I don't, uh, it's still, that's like saying we would be better off without the invention of the cotton gin. Certainly. But it did happen, and uh, probably was going to happen. Yeah, the thing that I hear all the time is like, well, at least the British freed their slaves uh, before the United States did. But would they have if it was such an important part of the economy that they still had control over in the South? Yeah, probably not. That's a good point. I mean, one, you, you could argue that the British freed their slaves as a direct economic result of the Napoleonic Wars. They fought the Napoleonic Wars because the, of the French Revolution. And the French Revolution happened because of the American Revolution. So, ipso well, facto, I mean, yeah. the American Revolution is the reason why there are no more <laughs> the slavery has been abolished. And that's also true on the scale of the American continent, which is the other way that you can look at this. You could say some of the founding fathers were slaves, and that's true. Um, and that's why the project that they initiated was a contradictory mess. And one of its internal contradictions, which had to be resolved and was, uh, was the question of slavery. And the that began in the 1780. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit too hard and fast of a of a statement to say that the the French Revolution existed because of the American Revolution, and uh, just to head off people that would say, "Well, it's way more complicated than that." Yeah, fucking, of course it is. But like uh, the the fact that the French government had no money is a direct result of their involvement with the war against the British that they fought when they allied with the United States or the the colony. So that was a direct contribution to the reason that the the french revolution happened and i'm sure matt matthew knows more about this than i do so like i don't well, know I, 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 I was gonna say you know in the in the, in the we're in the business part of our statements so like I've yeah said, <laughs> slavery who cares you know so, um no, look <laughs> it's um, um um that's a sound clip that gets you canceled yeah right yeah. I, I don't have i don't have a twitter so you know come at me um, it's like, this is not you know, we're so fucked. Cut this out. I'm speaking for the benefit of like 5,000 miles of ocean. Like you guys will have to deal with the consequences of all of this. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's actually a really good point. Um, I hadn't, I had not thought about this, but if you consider how invested the British empire was in the, in, in the, the textile economy coming out of the American South with the production of cotton, it's actually entirely reasonable to postulate 
that the British Empire might not have abolished slavery if they still had control over what became the, the south of the United States. Considering to how close the British Empire came to intervening in the American Civil War, um, precisely because right. of the question of the textile industry, it's reasonable um, to say that... Um, Made, I mean, you know, it's hypothetical, and this is sort of, I mean, hypotheticals in history are, are fun and frustrating because, as Chris, I'm sure you know this as well, it's like these the big what-ifs, you know, what if this, what if that, and then people build their careers talking about these sort of tangential hypothetical situations. Um, but Like, um, what if somebody went back in time and gave Robert E. Lee AK-47? Right, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> What now? Isn't that Harry Turtle? What now, James McPherson? Like... <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the the Guns of the South novels. But yeah, Th- right. throw those into the fucking pulper, man. Yeah, Newt Gingrich also. <laughs> just to give you an idea, like I think the sort of the fertile soil from which these ideas spring. Newt Gingrich wrote a series of fiction books about you know what if the South had won the Civil War, which I think was based on like what if the British had intervened on behalf of the Confederacy or something like that. I'll tell you what would have um, happened. If the South had won the Civil War, there would have been another one. Like, if the South yes. had won the Civil War and they got to establish their own country, there would have just been another war in which the American Republic just invaded a sovereign nation. And, uh, yeah. because... We, we love doing that shit. Also yeah, we do this shit, we do this shit all the time. Um, but because... It, because The economic weight of the North yeah. would have eventually overspilled its boundaries and crushed the South. You yeah. know, there's just no, no two ways. Well, especially because this would have been, like, pointed directionally speaking to the South. You know, that would have been our jam, you know? Which is, like, someone else to invade south of the border. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the idea that the economic interests of, of an emergent industrial society could have tolerated... Uh, an alternative mode of production right yeah. on its doorstep on right. the continent that it's conceived of itself as destined to dominate right. is just absurd. Right. The or only yeah. question is when the Civil War was going to happen, right. and arguably it probably just should have happened sooner. Yes. Yeah. Well, and yes, I mean, again, like this is like deeply pandemic, but in a sense it really had, you know, and, in a, in a, and, yeah. and probably in the same sense it hasn't really finished. Um, but yeah, is that what we wanted to talk about? Is that why we're here? I guess so. <laughs> you know, America. Uh, yeah. It's the 4th of July. The 4th of July. I, I actually wouldn't mind at all talking about um, the 4th of July. And um, and just coming out, of, again, like off of all of the, the social media posts that I saw yesterday with this sort of performance of like either, and I don't know, maybe you guys can tell me, did a protest happen about Rushmore? Or was this another hypothetical someone was talking about? Okay, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I don't know either. I have to Google that shit. <clears throat> yeah. Also, it depends on how you qualify a protest because, you know, ever since the age of COVID, just driving around in your car with holding a sign out the window to take a picture on social media qualifies that as a counts. protest. Right. So, yeah, like, true. maybe there was one. Right, maybe. maybe. If you, like, or like, a Facebook invite was probably sent out and it was, like, location, the world, you know? Yeah, right, right. Back in the day when we would protest too, sometimes it was just five of us standing on a street corner with a table that had some literature. So like, yeah, turn I guess it, that's true, technically true. a protest. Right. No? Turn every paper sale into a, into a little demonstration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That way you become a fucking fixture. You become just white noise that people can ignore. Yeah. Just like this, that dude that used to wear the, um, the tie-dye shirt in Austin and he would like ha- have headphones plugged into nothing and he would hold a sign that would be like, happy Wednesday. Yeah. Like that. That's what uh, that's what we aspire to. There's also a guy that rides his bike bicycle around Berlin, and he has he flies like a Turkish flag, and he has signs, and he plays music, and he rides his bicycle up and down the street. 
everybody knows exactly who I'm, if you ask someone, they know exactly who you're talking about and no one knows what his, what his deal is. Like no one knows why he's doing it or what his point <laughs> is. He's just always there and he's sort of part of like the local color. He's um, being Turkish. <laughs> yes. Yeah, or I, I think it's like an anti-Erdogan thing, um, but I really don't know. Oh. Um, it's it's either that or a pro Erdogan thing. Probably, probably one or the other. Yeah, he's he's probably uh, an ally of the traitor Gulen. <laughs> hey, I was a uh, I was one. <laughs> yes, you were the traitor Gulen, Jason. You're CIA payroll. Fuck, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, but you know, being from the IS tradition, we we have a long a long history of being on the CIA payroll. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Right. You know what was really cool is whenever the capitalism came back to Poland. <laughs> Fuck yeah. There's there's a tradition of the Fourth of July that really ought to be recaptured. Um, and it seems that people are sort of abandoning it in this performative stance. That essentially, in my point of view, to sort of vacate the space. Um, to the people that they're protesting against, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, right. I would. I, I think we could go further on this point of like the tradition of the American Revolution and the the history that came out of it. There's a lot to reclaim there that shouldn't just be sort of written off as being imperialist. I, I don't know what you know. It's in a sense it's sort of well, it's not sort of tragic. I actually find it tragic. Yeah, I find it extremely tragic. Uh, Actually, I had this conversation with a couple of friends yesterday, and they said the American Revolution was no such thing. It was a conservative bourgeois reaction to limitations on expansion and slavery, which was like, which is to say that like it shouldn't have happened. It's regrettable that it happened, and it's got nothing to do with us. And by extensions, the the polity that is the you know Republic of the United States of America is a uh, is just this regrettable accident of history to be resolved and i guess the way it's resolved is to obliterate it and however one does that is insignificant because it's not going to happen <laughs> so you just imagine yeah. imagine whatever future you wish because it's not act it's not actionable right i mean like the rotting corpse of the american empire is a, a, a terrible putrefying malignant force in the world and so there is a rational kernel of truth here that like the american the results of the American Revolution has in, ended up being a, a bad thing for specifically Native Americans, union organizers on the the Global South or National Liberation Movements, uh, you know. So, yeah, the, there's a rational kernel there. So I, I understand that impetus. But I think that mostly what I take issue with is the fact that it's seen as an inevitability. Like there was there was nothing within the bourgeois revolution that happened in the United States as even as abbreviated as it was that it's worth championing or seeing as progressive or uh, and whereas my position would be that the, the bourgeois the liberalism in the united states which takes hold of and becomes the ruling ideology of society in 1776 or whatever had a window wherein it was progressive so like i think that judging the the death germ judging the corpse of the of the american state by the germs that killed it is just as ridiculous as doing the same thing to the Soviet Union, right? There were many other germs that could have gone many other directions, like turned into other things. I don't know. You know, you know what I mean. You, uh, the Victor Surge quote that, yeah, but well, for America. Well, and in the the history, the history unfolding from 1776 
and I would argue actually it's from the 1760s, right? From tax riots and tarring and feathering and all the sure, underground sure, patriot yeah. societies. The history that unfolds from that is a history of that contradiction being resolved, wherein like there's no Bill of Rights until there's Shays Rebellion, you know? There are debtors' prisons until there's the Whiskey Rebellion. There's no uh, there's no feminist movement without the Seneca Falls Declaration. There's no abolition of slavery without abolitionist societies, including the ones who were part of the revolutionary camp, including the founding fathers like John Jay and and Benjamin Franklin, um, Thomas Paine. Yeah, like there. Yes, of course there is a there's a f- immense hypocritical uh, application of the notion of liberty in uh, because bourgeois notions of liberty are in fact limited, uh, but we inherited them. It seems to me like it's it, it used to be pretty easy to accept, and uh, we used to embody a tradition that said, yeah, we're going to make the revolution real or make it more complete. You know that we inherited the language of liberty and the impulse to actualize it and the tools to actualize it in the form of the republic, right? But the republic is both a means and an end. We need to use the republic in order to secure a republic. And you can only do that by expanding the franchise, expanding conceptions of liberty, expanding democracy all the way down to the workplace, the cooperative commonwealth. It's all one big fucking historical process. But if you've abandoned the notion of process, right. if you just flatten history into uh, everything that has been thus far has been bad, but maybe something will be good later, then yeah, sure, give it all up. It's, just, it's, you know, nothing good has happened yet. We still haven't lived in an era where people are doing good things. That just seems like a much more bleak view of the world than mine. Yeah, and I think that this is largely because this is the way Americans think about things. Uh, broken yeah. down into good guys and bad guys. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, we need, we need to, which one, was this person a good guy? I mean, I know he was an influential figure. He did all this. He contributed this and that, but he was problematic. Okay, bad guy. It's like, like to me, it's not that the fact that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, even though he wrote against slavery, isn't good or bad. It's bad. That was a bad thing. But like, was Thomas Jefferson a progressive figure? Fucking absolutely he was. It doesn't matter if people are good or bad if their historical role is one that like moves the chains forward, you know? I mean, I think that like... Football, football metaphor, not slavery metaphor. Um, uh, <laughs> Went completely over my head. So, <laughs> well, you know, I assume that most of the these other fucking nerds that don't know anything about sports probably would miss. Yeah, right, yeah. you know? Not cool jocks like me and Jason. Right. And Jason. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's what I'm known for. Yeah, your sports prowess. Yeah, I know, but I know like, about yeah. Emmett Smith. You know, yeah, it's. It's it's like it's it's like celebrities, you know. I mean, like you you look at historical figures like the Kardashians or whatever, and you know, is is this celebrity a good or a bad celebrity? Did they say or do something problematic? Oh, we'll cancel right. them. Fuck them. They are they are no longer some somebody whose music or films or uh, reality shows I can watch. It's the same the principle applied to all historical figures. Right. So I think like. There's a number of different thoughts going through my head. First of all, I think Jason's right about this sort of there's this right wing perspective that says that the founding fathers must have been good because they established a system whereby slavery could eventually be abolished. Right. And they're right about that, but not in the way that they think they are, because if we're up to the founding fathers, slavery would still exist. Right. Um, Right. 
I don't think that. Well, some of the founding fathers. But let's let's go ahead and let's say most in in, in tipping our hats to that ridiculous meme that's been floating around with like all the faces dotted up. Let's go ahead and say even most of the founding fathers, right? They would have been very comfortable okay. if they'd been able to find a balance in which both economic systems could have functioned uh, seamlessly or relatively seamlessly together on the same continent, right? They were wrong, um, and it took the Civil War to prove it. But I think that the political mission of that group of people was certainly the prolongation of slavery for at least as long as possible. Right. Which is to say beyond their lifetimes. That was that was at least the goal. Right. And to this and, and sure. this account, they have something in common with like our neoliberal overlords, because their ideas about every crisis or every social problem or whatever, be it climate crisis or racism or whatever, just kick it farther down the road. The health crisis, kick it farther down the road, make it some other generation's problem, which means us um, or has meant us <clears throat> for the past couple of decades. But so so that's one. But but nevertheless, there was a process, a process that was unleashed. Um, beginning in, in the mid 18th century in the North American continent, which would ultimately culminate in the abolition of slavery, which would ultimately culminate in the broadening of the political franchise, right? We don't know how broad the political franchise is going to become, but we can certainly trace the broadening back to that point, right? In the comparison to the French and American revolutions, especially because as Marxists, we always, we, sometimes rather uncomfortably try to put things in, in, in class categories when reality is a little bit more messy than, than maybe these categories would allow for. But at the sure. French Revolution, let's yep. just, again, speaking hard and fast and broadly or whatever, <clears throat> that you had the class, the bourgeois class, that ran up against the king in a crisis that was exacerbated by or in a political crisis that was exacerbated by an economic crisis because, indeed, of, of the war in North America, right? That crisis between those two groups of people, the old feudal aristocracy and the king and the bishops against the bourgeoisie and the upcoming merchants came to a stalemate, right? They couldn't resolve their differences through the estates general, which is what's called in 1789. Um, and so... The, the the merchant classes like played their trump card and they unleashed the people, right? That's the sort of like the classic Marxist interpretation, right? And the people stormed the Bastille, they march on Versailles, they inaugurate what three, four, five years of, of revolutionary activity that ends in Termidor in 1794. Right? <clears throat> and in the process of all of that, the bourgeois class is trying to catch up because they've unleashed this social force. And they're trying to get a handle on it. They're like trying to put the lid back onto the genie back in the bottle as quick as and effectively as they can, right? Um, and, and like the question of slavery, if that meant reinstalling a king, not the king, because the king was dead, but a king, they would have been happy to do it. Um, and they eventually they did. They did, yes. It's, it, it's fascinating to me that in North America, in a, in, in, in a much more rural, less urbane society, that... <clears throat> that those class differences became much sharper and that the, the subaltern classes organized themselves much more quickly and much more effectively than did, say, the urban Parisian working classes, or what became called the sans-culottes in Paris did in, in like the 1780s. There were already networks in North America, probably as traditions from the English Revolution and all the Puritans that decamped to North America and brought their own political ideas with them, about godly societies and social experimentation and so on. That by the time Freemasonry, there you go. Freemasonry you is go. incredibly right. important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And yeah. so, and so these networks already exist or exist in North America, and they seem to be much more effective 
than they were even in Europe. And maybe that's because there wasn't this feudal weight sort of like weighing down on it or the absolutism of the monarchy or whatever. Even the British monarchy by that point is a constitutional uh, form of government. But people start organizing themselves and, and almost from the get-go, it's, it's, it's not a question of, of, of the bourgeois classes and the merchant classes sort of like getting or unleashing the people. The people are already doing it. They occupy Boston. They kick the British out. You know, Bunker Hill happens before, or what, Breed's Hill, Bunker Hill, depending on, you know, how accurate you want to be, right? Blah, 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 right? (laughs) Yeah. All of this happens before 1776, before the Declaration of Independence, before 4th of July. The reason the 4th of July happens after it is because basically these people are saying, like, holy shit, they occupy Boston. Get ahead of this thing. Get ahead of this thing. Get ahead of this thing. And those people spend the entire war trying to get ahead of the thing. And they really don't until the Constitution is signed in 1789. Yeah, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say that uh, it's a peculiar accident or an irony of history that the first martyr of the American revolutionary cause was a black man named Crispus Attucks, uh, you know, who died during the Boston Massacre. But that makes him sound like he was just like an accidental bystander who got caught up in some white people's shit that had nothing to do with him. But in fact, he was one of the instigators of and leaders of the Boston riots. And... Uh, as such, had to have been, at least in some way, connected to the underground patriot networks in the Northeast that were agitating prior to the war. And that status is reflected by the fact that he's buried in a cemetery, uh, the same cemetery as Samuel Adams and John Hancock and Paul Revere, and is accorded the status of one of the great heroes of American history. Because the patriot camp at the time was more complicated uh, especially in the Northeast, you know, where they, like I said, they start abolishing slavery immediately after the war, and they they argue for abolition of slavery in their uh, first constitution. They they don't win because they're allied with utter reactionaries on on that question with people like George Washington or whatever. But the point is that even from the very beginning, there's this tendency uh, toward rupture, even between the the different types of revolutionaries. In America, and and Crispus Attucks is just one example of that. This is why I say, like, were the founding fathers slave owners? I don't really care. It's because what actually was important in the American Revolution was happening outside the the walls of Liberty Hall, which I think is what we call it, if I remember correctly, yeah. in Philadelphia, yeah. right? In Philadelphia, was, was there actually yeah. was a revolution? There was there was a so there was a like an authentic one. Um, that was using as a vehicle of it, not necessarily sort of um, uh, even like a political reform, as was the case in the French Revolution. Like, let's move from an absolute to a constitutional monarchy. But fuck the king. We don't need this shit. Let's do it for ourselves. That was that was step one from the American Revolution. And I think that there's something that ought to really be appreciated, defended, valued, inculcated in leftist culture. Um, about about this historical event. I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to stop. But, but that. <laughs> right. So it's the it's the great man view of history right. is is the view of history that the American left has. Right. Yeah. Within that view of history, we, we necessarily need, need to have our tidy little uh, figures that we can identify with or eschew, right? So the idea of the American Revolution as a process is totally alien. And instead, it is the actions of these great men. So it's it, it makes sense that American leftists would not be able to understand the process of revolution and just think of the reactionary nature of 
a majority of the people in that picture with dots on their faces. Yeah, it's total. It makes total sense. One thing that I want to make clear here is like, it's not that people don't like slave owners that like bothers me. Like, I don't either. Fuck them. You know, they're bad. I agree. They suck. Glad they're They're dead. It's I'm glad we kicked fucking... their asses in the Civil War. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. But it's this ahistorical understanding of political processes that just... Well, in, in as much as it's masquerading as Marxism, it pisses me off. Right, right. I mean, I like, I understand when, like, the, 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 liberals do it. Yes, exactly. I fully accept when a conscious liberal uh, can't understand how the world works and tries to reduce everything in history down to, like, what exists in the hearts of particular powerful people. What frustrates me is when that's adopted and given a, a red veneer and then is is proffered as an explanation for events. They're libs, dude. They're all right. libs. Well, and what's especially frustrating about it is that typically speaking, these, you know, erstwhile comrades of ours are the same people who will look at the Russian Revolution and say, look, just because of Stalinism, it doesn't mean the revolution was bad. Don't forget about these other people, Trotsky, whatever, or, or the anarchist types, whichever ones. The, look, just because of the Thermidor, it doesn't mean that the French Revolution was bad. Look at Danton, Robespierre, Marat. And then they look at the American Revolution and go, yeah, fucking right. mistake, bullshit. Right. right. You know? Right. <laughs> and it, it, it's self-flagellation. Right. It's sort of like checking your privilege right. because you realize that you're in the belly of the beast of the fucking biggest purveyor of violence and destruction in the world today. And it's just... And like, it sucks. Right. It does. <laughs> and then there's an, even, we live. there's an even greater inconsistency because often if those people know anything about history, they'll look at a, they'll look at a great man figure like Oliver Cromwell and be like, he was a good guy, even though he also did subjugate the Irish and basically inaugurate the period of Irish suffering that it, it doesn't really end until the fucking end of the Second World War. Yeah, like, really, he, it's still, he, he unless shit. you live in Belfast and then it's right. still going, right? right? And that's Cromwell's fault. But right. also... He was good because he was parliament, anti, anti-monarchy, and so on. That same level of like nuance is just not applied to American history. Abraham Lincoln was good. He freed the slaves, but he also opened up the frontier to, uh, you know, massacre the indigenous. So that means this whole experiment was a mistake. Matt, Matthew, uh, I remember one time I said something about, um, like on Instagram or whatever, I said something about uh, John Brown being the only good Calvinist. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you, and you said something like, you say, well, well. What about Oliver Cromwell? And I was just like, Oliver Cromwell was a good and a bad Calvinist, <laughs> right? But it doesn't matter. He was the uh, he was history, history on horseback horse. for yeah, the time, right? right? right. Yeah, right. yeah. And that's that's the founding fathers. That's Abraham Lincoln. You know, Abra- that, that's another thing that you said. Lincoln opened up the frontier, but he, uh, you know, so he, he was obviously a bad guy. Or you have to think about, like, Lincoln didn't necessarily want to free the slaves. He said that he would keep, if it meant that the Union would stay together, he would, you know, be okay with slavery. But it doesn't fucking matter because he did free the slaves. Like, what what Lincoln wanted is immaterial. It doesn't fucking matter. Well, and also, what Lincoln wanted, if we, if... To the extent that it matters at all, just for the historical record, what Lincoln wanted was abolition of slavery, but piecemeal, state by state, and legislatively. When he said, right, if right. I could preserve the Union without freeing a single slave, I would, what he meant was, I would love to not go to war. He didn't mean, I hope they're slaves forever. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, an, imp- that's an important thing. campaign promise. And that, just, that makes, yeah, means he was a yeah. goddamn moderate and a coward, and oh well, because history forced his hand anyways. Right. And I think the other point to be made is just like with the American Revolution, it was just the, the Emancipation Proclamation was simply a question of the federal government trying to get a handle on this shit because the slaves, in the context of the war, were freeing themselves. 
That's right. Right. Well, and you had generals like Sherman marching around, freeing slaves, giving them guns and saying, you can keep this farm as long as you run these guys out. Right. You know, so like, yeah, you get out ahead of that or you have full scale social revolution on your hands. And so that's actually another thing that people say is like Lincoln didn't free the slaves. The slaves freed themselves, which is partially true. But it's a reciprocal thing here, right? The slave revolts could have been put down by the Union and been forced back onto land. But they didn't because the the U.S. government recognized the tide of history and went with it in the form of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Right. And, and I think it was, and it was sold as, as a war measure. And it makes sense as a war measure. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, it, in the same way that the British Empire said any black person that runs away from the plantation and signs into the ranks of the uh, the expeditionary force in North America will be given their freedom, right? It's a war measure. It makes sense. It doesn't mean that the British, right. out of the goodness of the hearts of the British Empire, you know, yeah. like, guys, hey, watch, you know what we have to do. Yeah, right. You know, like, let's, let's yeah, so well, they didn't, obviously, no. It was a war measure. It was, it, it, they, they stood also to gain. Um, the, and the, the way that the uh, emancipation of slaves in the British Empire was sold in Parliament, one of the ways, was the Royal Navy could build up its fleet again and begin legalized privateering on ships that were transporting right. slaves and thus weaken its enemies and gain money. So, like, that. does that mean that it was bad <laughs> that the British Empire outlawed slavery, slavery and then waged open war on slavers? No, it was a good thing, even though the British Empire is bad. Right. This is why, um, you know, this... Our, our, our recent, uh, deepening of our engagement with Hegel is so important to understanding history. Even if you don't believe, even if you don't agree with Hegel that there is such a thing as God, right? That if you look at the way that the, that the movement of history acts is, is sort of periodically pronounced in these world historic events that really just like defy whatever it is that individuals or even whole societies desire because of their culture, right? Because spirit moves through them and animates them regardless and you know you would never look at the whole scope of the history of the united kingdom and say that the ship of the line flying a union jack is an agent of progress not ever right (laughs) you look at like from fucking hong kong to singapore to calcutta like this is this is all bad right except for that it's born in something wonderful which is the abolition of the global slave trade which itself grows out of merchant capital becoming ascendant over the landed aristocracy which is something maybe bad except for that being serfs is terrible so that's good right and it and it in either direction you go forward or backward it flip-flops like this because contradiction drives the world it drives history it is the movement of spirit it's much more interesting and complicated than that yeah you know actually i wanted to um on the subject of the uh the the american civil war and the american republic uh and its contradictory nature I was reading Domenico Lasordo's War and Revolution. He says that the forces that had defeated the Tories and Loyalists on the one hand and the poor farmers on the other promulgated the new federal constitution in a kind of coup d'etat. It was marked by a compromise that allowed the southern states to continue to enjoy black slavery undisturbed. A few decades later, the same forces confronted one another in a fight to the finish when the contradictions that had been previously smoothed over or masked by a compromise that had proved unstable matured to a breaking point. We can now understand why both abolitionists and supporters of slavery alike referred to the anti-British War of Independence and the declarations and constitutional texts arriving from it during the Civil War. Lincoln's followers invoked the Philadelphia Constitution with its solemn opening in which the people of the United States wished to form a more perfect union, 
and the literature of the Confederacy, on the other hand, laid claim to the legacy of patriotic struggles against an oppressive central power, underscored the centrality of the rights of each single state, and it goes on like this, blah, 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 blah. And they reminded the abolitionists that Washington, Jefferson, and Monroe were all slave owners. Both sides declared that they were following in the tracks laid down by the founding father. Saturn does indeed devour his children. Initiated with the anti-British rebellion, the democratic revolution went beyond the old constitutional compromise, no longer recognized it, and could no longer recognize itself in it. And that's what I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so like, contained within the American Revolution was the progressive northern bourgeoisie and the reactionary southern landed aristocracy, right? Yeah. Which was bourgeoisie that made good on being bourgeoisie. The nature of the southern aristocracy is sort of a category that, that defies neat class distinction right. right but anyway so there the the two seeds of the of, of the american revolution progressive northern bourgeoisie reactionary southern aristocracy which again come to a head uh, in open conflict in the civil war and then uh, the north defeats the south and some sort of dialectical combination of northern abolitionist ideas and southern arist aristocratic uh, ideas is what ends up winning out in the South. And then those ideas continue, Southern aristocratic ideas in their new mitigated form, and progressive ideas in their continuing evolution, the, the form that they continue to evolve in, come to a head during the civil rights struggle. And the dialectical synthesis of those two ideas is what comes out of it. It's a process of constant dialectical struggle between two opposed ideas that is diminishing the uh, the Southern aristocratic ideas that are held over from the beginning of the revolution. So it would have been much, much better if after, you know, it, during Reconstruction, uh, the Southern uh, Southern landowners were all beheaded and yep. the land was redistributed to the former slaves. But what we have instead is, of course, the liberal bourgeois way of dealing with things. Even in the process of doing violence to establish the dictatorship of the North over the South, they couldn't carry it through to fruition because that does the capacity for doing that does not exist within the bourgeois project. Right. That's why, what is it, Matthew, you'll know this. Sanjus is the one who said, those who make only half a revolution dig their own graves. Sounds right. Yeah, Yeah. because yeah, we look at the difference between 1789 and 1776, right? And the two historical eras, uh, you know, the era that grows out of the two on each continent. The French just made a more thorough revolution. Yeah, but you got to remember where Saint-Just ended up, too. So, <laughs> In his own grave. Uh, yeah, <laughs> In true. a mass grave. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that gets me, that, that strikes me about all of this, and let, let's take aside, if we can, I guess, I guess we really can't, but let's put aside the question of processes. Let's just say, for example, that you're a leftist in the United States, and, and so you identify with revolution. Right. And this, I think, goes back to a point, Chris, that you made about self-flagellation. And I think, Jason, you made a similar point, too. Why? What is the internal dynamic that happens in your mind where you have where you abdicate the space of a revolution to your ideological enemies? Right. Let's let's yeah. say that it actually let's say that the Twitter war actually does matter. Right. Let's say that it is sort of like a cultural battleground in which it's important to seize like these 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 heights Right. And which you can sort of like conduct fire and rain chaos down on your on your on your principal uh, opposition, you know, like the people who don't agree with you or something like that. Right. Why would you take a revolution that happened in the context of your own culture, your own society, your own history and say, like, I oh, know not that 
not that, right? Because yeah. because of the appeal of of what I don't know what you know of saying that slavery is bad or that the the Native American genocide is bad. Don't people realize that you can say both that the revolution was a good thing and genocide is a bad thing, right? Like what's happening in people's minds? Um, I sound like an old man. <laughs> like I can hear myself and I don't like it. Like what are these young kids thinking? You know. Um, and, and I ask myself if it's a question, like, I know there's, there's this debate happening in the United States of like what's taught in schools. I know there's a question of critical race theory. I think that there is a tradition in the United States of not teaching critical thought, right? And this is something that predates right. critical race theory, even as, as, as a school of thought, right? Um, going back to the McCarthy era, when in, in the American education system, you did not teach people to think critically. You taught them to think ideologically. And the product of that right. seems to me, at least in this case, to produce this cadre of people who, who are so ideologically blinkered that all things America are bad. Um, therefore, the revolution that, that founded America or got the American project on the rails um, must therefore also be bad. Um, and a, and uh-huh. it, I found it bitterly disappointing because what that means is that you vacate the space for the people that you actually do disagree with, the people that have all the wrong ideas about the American revolution to occupy that platform and say like, you're right, this is ours. And you get some idiot like Donald Trump talking about storming airports or something like that in his, in his 4th of July speech, you know, and everyone, yeah, you know, it's like the crowd going crazy, you know, whatever. And it's like, it just, not only have you seeded like the ideological ground, you've just made the whole debate worse, right? It just got dumber in the yeah. process. And that, so this is something that I, I, I don't have an answer for um, outside of this, outside yeah. of this question of like, what is maybe people stop teaching people to think, Correctly, right. but again, that I sound I sound my age. You know? Well, I mean, there's clearly like, and this is a verifiable fact: decline in the quality of education in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, education used to be uh, available to fewer people, but be better. Now it's available to more people, and it's uh-huh. worse because it has to be uh-huh. because you can't give everybody good education. You don't want everybody being able to think critically and make decisions. You just want them to have enough education to be able to pull the switches and the levers in order to keep society running. So you still give the good education, but only to the rich people. You give the shitty education to everyone else, right? Well, right. I mean, that's just... You know, what better education could you give to people who you didn't want getting bad ideas in their heads about how you shouldn't be in charge than to teach them that the American Revolution was bad rather than something that they ought to do themselves as well? Just make sure that they will never ever have a message that resonates with anybody that doesn't already agree with right it's kind of like um you know they taught nat turner about moses and he was like well shit i could do that right (laughs) (laughs) almost literally that's exactly how that went literally (laughs) (laughs) he's like y'all motherfuckers are canaanites and he wasn't wrong yeah um, I mean, this does raise a this does raise an important question, which is like, should we cancel Nat Turner yeah, for being right. inspired by <laughs> ethnic cleansing? I think we probably should. No, because so this conversation raises another question, which is about the um, the way in which one ought or ought not to embrace this complex legacy of historical process in these punctuated moments of clarity that we call revolution, yeah. counter revolution, etc. Because you know, you could think all of these things and then still be you know, disgusted beyond uh, uh, your ability to describe by the uh, perpetual Nuremberg rally that is living in the United States. <laughs> uh, I stole that from Chris. It's, um, it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. 
So basically, the question is: Should one or shouldn't one celebrate the Fourth of July? And correspondingly, should everybody else in the world have to hear about whether or not one does or doesn't celebrate the Fourth of July? Because, like, I don't know, man. I like grilling some hot dogs. You know? <laughs> right. That actually, that that's that's my other point, which is like, let's let's uh, aside from like a, a a good historical lens, a view of the process, right, on the American Revolution, right? Aside from just saying, like, why as a revolutionary would you abdicate the right to sort of postulate a revolutionary tradition that happens to be where you're, happens to have happened where you're from, why at the same time not take a holiday and go grill some hot dogs, right? You're living in a world in which your enemies are trying to paint you as sort of elitist, out of touch, you know, ideologues, you know, who like joy kills, and whatever else, right? And you want to take away like one of the very few holidays that even exist in the United States in the first place, right? Because somehow it's it's tainted in its history. And it's insane. It's a day, uh, uh, Jason, you sent a James Cannon quote to me talking about this last night. And I can't remember really all of it, but what really stuck out to me is like, it's a day of the people. It's a people's day, right? And it should be celebrated as such. It should be venerated as such because that's what you're celebrating. Again, isn't necessarily just these old dudes in the Liberty Hall signing a document. That actually doesn't matter, right? I mean, it matters in the sense that like it's history and that it had consequences and that it matters, but that's actually not what was happening. That's just the most outward expression of what was happening in North America at that time, right? So why? I mean... What, what, what's, what's the get, right? I could even almost understand if like by somehow refusing or self-flagellating or saying like, no, we're not going to celebrate the 4th of July. Today is the day we're storming the barricades. Okay. That's the only like, example in which it's okay not to have a holiday and go to the revolution instead. Otherwise, chill the fuck Wait, so, out. So what you're really talking about is like celebrating the 4th of July. By doing a new one, but yeah, basically by, by the taking taking <laughs> the example of Nat Turner and just saying like, oh shit, we can do this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the way to celebrate. That's the right. Like the best way. Yeah. In absence of that, just fucking drink some shoot beer, a firework. Some yeah, you know, like yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's actually problematic too because people's dogs. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. That's why <laughs> like if you do encounter fireworks, make sure to report them to the police so that they can put them yes. all in one truck and then detonate them at the same time <laughs> and take out a fucking corner of a neighborhood. Right. Did you see no, that? No, no. What is this? As, as LAPD, Jason? Yeah. Yeah, LAPD confiscated just like uh, like thousands and thousands of illegal fireworks and then detonated them in the middle of the road. <laughs> On, on, and like blew up <laughs> on purpose li- or like literally okay. yeah li- on purpose there was controlled it was controlled oh, okay. uh, detonation <laughs> that blew up three cars oh and injured a bunch of people oh that's fantastic <laughs> it's badass <laughs> i bet it oh, looks cool sure i wish did, someone yeah. got a video yeah <laughs> on the subject of uh, of the james cannon and the fourth of july mm-hmm. um i really like this uh what he what he says about it, one might even see as a as a slight overcorrection in the other direction. He says, uh, when they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, they started something that opened up a new era of promise for all mankind. That's what I am ready to celebrate anytime the bands begin to play. The start and the promise. But nobody can sell me on the 4th of July speeches, which represent the start as the finish and the promise as the fulfillment. I quit believing in them a long time ago. Uh, as soon as I grew old enough to look around and see what was going on in, in this country, the beneficiaries of privilege claiming the heritage of our first revolution struck me as impostors. Right. I recognized the standard 4th of July orders as phonies, as desecrators of a noble dream. 
and man, it's just like that's just if we're talking about what it means to be doing politics. What's going to move people more? And aren't you propagandists yeah. to utilize what moves people most? It's like that. read Langston Hughes's "Make America America Again." I think I said that last time we talked about the Republic, but yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's a good on. one. Play the hits. There's also there's a, what was I going to say? There's a novelist that, that I know, Jason, you're familiar with, and I don't know, Chris, if you oh, read yeah. him, you haven't. You should. Yeah, His yeah. Was Howard Fast. He was a member of the Communist Party in like the mid early 20th century, right? And he wrote novels about Bunker Hill, and he wrote novels about Lexington, and he wrote novels yep. about Tom Paine. Um, and they're quite good. They're very good. I think he was the same guy who wrote Spartacus. You guys, yeah, he wrote, you know, yeah, so he wrote Spartacus, which was adapted by Dalton Trumbo, right? Um, into the film, right? So here's, here's a person who's in the American Revolutionary mm-hmm. tradition who's celebrating the history of the American Revolution as a means of propagating revolution. Right. Which makes, seems to my mind to make perfect sense. Right. Now, the irony here, and again, to, to, to connect my point about a lack of critical thinking, is that one of his books called The Crossing, I believe, was adapted into a made for TV film with Jeff Daniels in like the late 90s or something like that. And it's a very good film. Um, but, um, it was made for TV. It didn't, I don't think you could find it on Blu-ray or something like that, but it exists on YouTube, right? Which is pretty cool. Um, so it's worth watching. The problem is the guy who's mounted the video on his YouTube thing is a right winger. And it's sort of like, you know, I don't know, some MAGA site or something like that. And there's all this commentary about like, well, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the communist Denzians who run our society would never let us like show something like this anymore, you know? And of course, the pure irony is that the screenwriter is a communist from the 1940s and 50s, and it was put on television by A&E. So it was like, like in the 90s. So that's like, definitely some like at least Clintonite liberal shit. Um, but the, there seems to be this complete, there's, there's a complete unawareness of the fact that this is like actually something that leftists celebrate. This is something that we should embrace. This is something that we should talk about. We should show movies, you know, about it that celebrate even figures like George Washington when he kicked the shit out of the Hessians at uh, Trenton. So yeah, we oppose we oppose the Tories of every age. <laughs> well, I've <laughs> I've actually heard it argued elsewhere that you know Spartacus, like the the actual historical figure Spartacus, wasn't a principled opponent of slavery. So therefore, the Spartac the legacy of the Spartacus revolts is tainted. You gotta be, you I gotta be fucking kidding me. That's no, the no, thing I'm someone not even joking. Said. I think that I think that how could you I possibly make that claim? That, like once right. the slave revolts happened, the, the some of the some of Spartacus's yeah. slaves took Romans as slaves. Yeah. So like, uh, he's not a principled opponent of slavery. So therefore, the Spartacus revolt is not an anti-slavery revolt, uh. and Spartacus is bad. Therefore, Howard Fast bad, and everything you just said nullified listen taking your former slave owner and making him into your <laughs> slave isn't being pro-slavery that's just retributive justice <laughs> that's just Fair how enough. you do that's called reparations right? <laughs> right no i don't even know how i mean the, the the sources that exist on spartacus i don't even know could do they even go into that much detail that's a, that that i'm aware of that you could even like Spartacus yeah, himself is such like a shady figure in history. We know yeah, that it happened. Yeah. Like the dude did not write a manifesto. And it's not like the, you know? It wasn't like he established uh, like a new kind of society with like a constitution and something written down that we can then weigh against the historical you know claims versus the historical experience. Right. Not like the Taiping Revolution or the Paris Commune or something. The thing about slave revolts is they are um, they are moments, but they're they're events. I read a I read an academic paper recently also that that 
that that was it was a, it was an analysis of Hellenistic society in, in Egypt after the after the Alexandrian conquests, right? And they said, really, what we should be doing when we talk about Greeks that conquered Egypt was we should be putting this in a framework of colonizers, white colonizers, conquering uh, a global South territory, because that's really the only way to understand it. In what five like. 400 B. Back when, like, white as a concept didn't exist? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, this is, like, what, Alexander died in, what, 323, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, the point is, like, 2nd century BC, thereabouts, right? Yeah, precisely, before whiteness as a concept existed, before colonies as a concept, well, no, colonies existed, but not in the sense of, like, the imperialist, like, the British Empire colonies or whatever, right? And there's also something, and again, this is totally as tangential and doesn't help at all, but just in terms of how we locate communities and societies is that this wasn't like the British Empire coming and colonizing India. This would be basically like India coming and colonizing uh, the British, uh, the British Isles or so, right. the British Empire. Because, the, because in 300 BC, Egypt and the Persians before them were the dominant right. culture. And Greece was just a sort of like outlying community. Macedonia. Um, that occasionally thumbed their nose. Macedonia, Macedonia is the backwater that, yeah, Which Greece. is even more right. remote. The Greeks yeah, considered right, the Macedonians yeah, barbarians. Right. The only thing that the Macedonians knew how to do was kick ass <laughs> and they and they did i would yeah, say they right. did a fair yeah. bit of that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean to me that's there's something that's there. the most like asinine thing that i could possibly imagine so think about the the ancient egyptian empire of course being yeah. a world power in the mediterranean world right they actually did a very good job of imposing their culture on their neighbors and subjugating them. It's so asinine. There's not a nation of color in the global South. Right. The The concept of whiteness right. and the concept of like subhuman races comes about with the advent of capitalism. Yeah. But right. it is, it's within, it's in the interests right. of these liberals to think that things have always been the way they are and they are never going to change. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that, 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 that's good because that's like the only point about this tangent that's actually salvageable for the conversation that we're having, right? It's because the benefit to all of these sort of ideas that we're, that we're, that we're exploring is being like, why would you do this? This is bad. This is self-flagellation, whatever is in each case, they reify the notion that human nature is right. immutable. That culture is immutable, that nothing ever changes, it's just the same shit over and over again. So if it would be bad now, then it must have been bad then, and that's that's the end of it, right? That's the end of the dialogue, it's the end of the conversation, right? And and I think tragically, to say otherwise is somehow some kind of like leftist right. heresy. You have to think about like the the idea that if you were if you lived in England in the Middle Ages, people that lived in the town like a mile and a half down the road are considered foreigners and are strange speak a weird language and you know you don't trust them and they're bad and then then the concept of england as a country came about somehow like these (laughs) these ideas of inside and outside are definitely not immutable categories and the for liberalism race is a hard fast immutable category and white people have always been bad because white people have always hated brown people and that's never going to change so the best thing we can do is constantly feel bad about it that's the whole point of the right. of like the white fragility discourse you know um and uh there's there's a there's a big booming industry in uh teaching people how to feel bad about themselves there's lots of seminars for sure. it yeah. there's like academics yeah. making their bones on it you know it's just like 
The Marxists believe that these categories are fucking fake and we can make them go away. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There shouldn't even be any qualifiers there. That is actually uh, what Marxists believe. The what qualifies as Marxism now, which is just a a, a general radical liberalism that thinks people should have health care. You know, it's not good enough. Yeah. And this and this is why. So, like I said earlier, liberalism had its window of being a progressive force in society. And now it's wholly reactionary. And these people, radical liberals, are reactionaries. They're 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 to the past epoch. They are fucking bad guys. They're not Marxists. They're not revolutionaries. They're not even progressives anymore. Yeah. They're reactionaries. So, in conclusion, celebrate the 4th of July, if you want. <laughs> yeah. If you don't want to, that's fine, too. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Be, or not. Yeah, Matthew, right. I was or thinking not. about the um, yeah, yeah. the article Just, that yeah. you sent me, the uh, neo-Babuvist conceptions of the French Revolution and Enlightenment. And I really like the case that it makes, mm-hmm. that, um, mm-hmm. or that rather that what it what it illustrates is that in the early days of communism, of, of communism as a modern philosophy, it was uh, recognized, it was taken for granted, and it was taken as a point of pride and celebration that modern communism is birthed entirely within and, incul- and inculcated within the Republican tradition, as opposed to the various kind of top-down reforming socialisms of various the- theocrats and feudal aristocrats who had sympathy for the poor, that the modern communist tradition... Mm-hmm. Is uh, is born mm-hmm. with the slogan. Oh, now I don't. I remember the slogan about the Constitution in 1793, right? Uh, that these are people who saw themselves as inheritors of the Jacobin tradition, and in order to actualize the Jacobin tradition, you had to tear down every mm-hmm. every you know pseudo Jacobin who was a factory owner or a mill owner or whatever, and that uh and that Marx and Engels that their debt to the to the legacy of the French Revolution is is uh is immense. And they knew, and they knew so. And it's only much later on that we have looked at this uh, Republican tradition as something alien and bad, and that we don't want anything to do with. Uh, but how do we account for that? What, what's the reason why? Is I mean, obviously, I think we we have something of an answer. What we just said, everybody's a goddamn liberal now. But like, but why? <laughs> it's funny that they're all goddamn liberals and they fucking hate liberalism so much. They only hate the good parts of liberalism. They love the bad parts. No, I think it's it's it even to, to, to go back to the conversation we were having in the first place about Danzig and, and saying like, well, punk rock couldn't have happened now because people are too sensitive, right? Is what I think he's missing there is that, that is that the problem is that the concept of politics itself is entirely performative, right? And I think that fits very, very comfortably as as Chris as you said. It's like this sort of like we have to feel bad about it. Not only do we have to feel bad about it, but we have to show that we feel bad about it. Because showing that we feel bad yeah. about it demonstrates the virtue of our right. politics, right? Um, I think that's it. I actually don't think that most of these people honestly have. Oh God, I don't know. Maybe this isn't this isn't fair because the, we should ask someone to come defend themselves. We know people who are posting this shit. You know, we should ask them their opinion because I'd be I'd be very very interested to know if they could defend it. Um, because, because let me also say, I'm, I'm open to the fact that we could be completely wrong about this. I mean, I've posted you know? shit like that before. I, it, I mean, <laughs> it might explain a few things. I, I've definitely, I've right. definitely said shit and posted shit like that before in the past. Right. Um, I, right. I think it's like, it feels good to be transgressive and right. it, that's transgression. It's like, I think that's right. Yeah. The thing that was strikes me about transgressive is you have like, like death metal pagans, right? And they're like, we're Satanists. It's like they affirm Satan, fuck Jesus, whatever else we believe in Satan. Right? But the problem <laughs> is right. that Satan is a Christian concept. 
if you affirm Satan, you, you basically affirm Jesus, right? It's it's the same thing, right? It's just a, sort of the yin of the yang or the Manichaean perspective of evil and good, right? But if you say if you say not this, the other, then this is also a thing. How the fuck did I get to death Swedish death metal? <laughs> sort of, I think the problem is likewise when you're saying with when you take these sort of traditions from history and you're saying not this. The other, the problem is, is that you're just affirming that the other, no, that this is actually the thing, right? If you're saying like, well, no, not the American Revolution because the American Revolution is racist. It just allows and, people and, to say, well, yes, us, you're right. The American so Revolution is yeah. racist. And that's wrong. You've actually lost your position. And that, right, right. And that, right. Yeah. And I think people are very, very happy to be caught in the sort of ideological circuit because it doesn't leave you with any escape. Because what we said at the beginning was, it's like, great. Now what? The American founders were slave owners. Yes, they were. That is undeniable, right? Now what? Now what do we do? Tell people? Oh. Tear <laughs> down the statues. Everybody knows already. Great. Now what? Right? Well, tear down the statues. Post on the post on Instagram. Post on Twitter or something like that. It's this circuit of, of, of frustration, of angst, of, of distemper, right, and dissatisfaction. I think that people authentically feel with the world that's channeled into this sort of spiral into mm -hmm. nothingness, right? It's like chasing your own tail, right? Because you can't come to grips with the fact that there is a process here, that in engaging with the process, you're going to have to accept that some of these things are bad and we need to push through them. Ultimately, what I think is wrong here is that this is an attempt to address ideology without looking at the roots of the ideology. Like, I think it's important to combat racism. It's important to combat sexism, homophobia, wherever it rears its ugly head. But ultimately, we have to, we have to come to terms with the fact that those things are deeply rooted within the structure of our society, right? And we're going to have to change the structure of, those, of our society to do that. And in order to change that structure, we've got to completely turn under the economic base. So, I mean, it leads people off on wild goose chases. We've got to, hate racism as hard as it is possible to hate racism, which means we hate America. We hate everything America's ever done, you know, which it ultimately doesn't do anything. It's the same as not hating America and not hating racism, you know, because it doesn't do anything. It's just screaming at the sky, like the way that all the liberals did when Trump got elected, you know? Um, <laughs> it, so it's just like, I think that there's a fundamental disagreement about what Marxists actually think. And it is with one of the key principles of Marxism. And that is that ideology flows from the, uh, the, the superstructure that's rooted in the base of society. You know, the, the ruling ideas of society are the ideas of the ruling class themselves. And it doesn't, you can't just hate their ideology harder to make it go away. The case that I want to make about the U.S. Constitution like it provides us with a framework for making a case that I think we want to make to people in language that they already understand. It's not to say that the U.S. Constitution is a brilliant document. It's actually an extremely flawed constitution. It's actually one of the worst constitutions that exists. Yeah, I mean, like it, it's because it's it's not as they say a living document. You know, it's it's the enshrining of a moment right. in history. But nevertheless, like the Magna Carta before it, and like various general charters and and the various enshrining of rights it's been the basis of freedom of it's been the the it's been the basis of and the language for freedom struggles since it came into existence 
including the struggle for yeah, freedom. Yeah, it's an inspiring Vietnam. document. And, and you know, the, it, mm-hmm. again, this yep. is about how we actually talk about things. And I think, you know, there's one thing, there's one way to approach it, which says, I want to burn the Constitution, fuck the Constitution, let's make a new one. And there's another one that says, I actually fundamentally agree with what it puts forward. I just think it's not good enough. Well, I've been, I've been talking a lot about this with uh, C.P. Brad, you know, because the, the Communist Party tradition is one that is... Communism it, is 20th that, century that, Americanism. I mean, that's it in, in its most vulgar expression, yes. <laughs> but, the, you know, Matthew, yeah. you, you mentioned right. um, books like Citizen Tom Paine and Freedom Road and people like Howard Fast, people like um, like Paul Robeson, you know, who said that, you know, my, my ancestors mm-hmm. fought and died and died in the fields uh, either as laborers or as soldiers in order to make this country and you're not going to keep me out of it's out of you know I'm paraphrasing all right but it's like you know this is yeah. my inheritance yeah. just as yeah, much yeah. as it is yours yeah um, and that embodies right. a, a kind of a, a, a right. philosophical yeah. tradition um, that sees the Republic as the promise right. and also the means of achieving the promise uh, and that comes from people like Frederick Douglass uh, and it mm-hmm. comes from people like Benjamin Franklin when he says you know, when the when the when he comes out of the of Liberty Hall and the person in the crowd says, "Well, what have we got? Uh, a, a republic, madam, if you can keep it." And basically, every freedom struggle ever since then has been a matter of trying to keep right. it. And the only way to keep it is to pres- not just to preserve it, but to make it develop. And the difference between being a, con- a, a progressive and a reactionary is what is how you're trying to keep it. And in its pre- like I was saying in its preamble, there's nothing about the way the Constitution is framed that I think we should find objectionable as so, as communists. Because what does it say? It says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I want to do all of that. I just think I'm going to, I just think I want to do it better than they did. You need to do all that because it hasn't been done yet. Yeah.